Jag vet inte hur många sällskaper jag har mött som sliter med att få in professionella investorer till trots för att produkten egentligen är ganska bra och sällskapet visar växt och goda tal. Vi ser en ting de proffsiga investorerna på utsikter i tillägg att du bygger ett bra sällskap självklart är hur du hanterar dina aktionärer eller ditt så kallade cap table som det heter på startupsk. Ett ödelagt cap table sätter rätt och slett en stopper för sällskapsutveckling. Unlisted.ai gör det möjligt för sällskaper att hantera aktie- och optionsprogrammer, aktieägarboken, cap table och det mesta av rättigheter in mot aktierna i sällskapet på ett sted. Pröv Unlisted.ai sin gratisversion idag. Hi and welcome to Shifters Podcast. Today we have a very special guest, uh, Hugo Pereira. He's the head of marketing and growth at EV Box. Welcome, Hugo. Hi, Lucas. Well, pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's very nice to have you as well. So uh, let's get right to it. So, what is EV Box? Well, it's a good starting point. So, EV Box is a, is a clean tank company, and that works in the electric mobility industry. So as people are aware, electric cars are rising. There's a, there's over 3 million electric vehicles on the roads. And uh, opposite to the fuel cars, you don't have to go to a fuel station to, you know, in order to charge your car. The fuel, to a certain extent, comes to you. So there is a paradigm shift where you, with an electric car, will be able to charge at home, at work, at retail areas like hospitals, uh, restaurants, hotels, or even in public, on the highway, as as doing today. So EVVOC's mission is to drive sustainable mobility, and we do that by bringing uh, leading charging solutions um, to the world. So is it, like, is it basically a, a smart uh, electric vehicle charger? Yeah, essentially that that's what it is. It's just a charging car, is the hardware, uh, which is the design, the manufacturing of the, of the charging station, and then the software, which is where the magic happens, uh, which is the charging management software behind the station that uh, that helps doing all sorts of activities uh, when you start scaling up a charging infrastructure. So at a certain point in time, with so many charging points uh, in the city, in the buildings, at home, you have to start thinking that, you know, how, to, how do you balance the, the consumption of energy? And how do we integrate uh, that, that software with the home management systems or voice uh, applications? And or how do you reimburse costs? Yeah, because it is a, many people have a business card and have to reimburse. So the, the software is also a critical element uh, of the hardware. As many other applications, hardware and software have to work together nowadays. So it's um, uh, the your company is, uh, is it's a hardware product with a software element that's... Uh, uh, you think you think that's the most important part to di- differentiate yourself from other yeah. hardware manufacturers? Exactly, exactly. So the, the element what is what is inside the station, what is on the cloud, is, is what differentiates and what sets uh, what will set also the competition apart. Uh, because at the end of the day, hardware can be replicated, but the the way that things work, the design is what uh, what makes a difference. Yeah, uh, you can see that with with the laptops. Yeah. You have MacBooks, you have Dells, you have Aces, you have Windows, and you know all of them have a certain characteristic of design on as a hardware. 
but a very distinguished way of operating. So it's the same with the charging stations. Um, there yeah. are distinguished ways of operating them. So you, you think that all hardware companies should have a software layer to differentiate? I think all hardware companies will have to become an IoT company, uh, like the whole Internet of Things movement. So all hardware has to have connected with software. Otherwise, chances are you'll become obsolete. And you can see you can see that happening everywhere. Yeah, you can see that the dishwashers are connected today, and washing machines, uh, uh, temperature control applications like like Nest, everything is being connected, uh, which brings a gradual level of excitement, risk, and uh, an ability to do new things in your home. So you're the, you're the head of marketing and growth. So we're going to talk about growth. And um, so just to set the, um, uh, just to set the start, uh, how how big is EV Box? Like, who are your clients, and how many devices do you sell each year? And how how sure. has the journey been from the start? Ooh, uh, so so EV Box actually started in 2010. So some people, uh, you know, there is this concept: how long are you a startup? Yeah. Um, so, so I, I, that's why I mentioned that uh, we are a clean tank company. We are maybe a scale up in the context of things, as uh, as we've been growing rapidly. And our, most of our customers, let's call it to be B two B. So our operating model is B two B to C or B two B to B. So we work with a network of resellers, distributors, and that can uh, that you know offer our solutions to the customers, which can be hotels, restaurants, buildings, uh, real estate. Uh, airports, cities, uh, people at home. So our resellers choose the different ways of reaching those customers. So our, our goal is to enable our partners to, you know, to offer our product in the best possible manner to their consumers. We also have an interesting model of being a hybrid company. So we also do inbound marketing and, and, and to a certain extent, direct sales, but always with the intention of, uh, of nurturing the potential customer and when he reaches a phase of installing the station or accepting the, let's say, call it the offer or the, or the quotation, then we also pass it to our partner or to an installation company that can execute the, the final part of the installation. So you actually, actually do the, are, so you do the marketing for the so for yeah, the, to a certain extent, yes. But so. the partners the partners are also happy because was, we we become also a lead generation channel for them. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so you help them sell. Exactly. We have them sell a lot. And we grow rapidly. So just to give an idea, I joined three and a half years ago uh, in 2015. Um, at the time, uh, EVBox had been uh, had a new majority shareholder, which had uh, which was a private equity firm, and we were based in the Netherlands. So it was founded and is a Dutch-founded company, and it was starting to expand globally. So I joined in that momentum where we were opening offices in Belgium, France, UK, Norway, United States, um, and we were about 15 people, give or take. And, and three years later, we are 200 plus people. So, so the company is growing rapidly. Uh, also, in terms of, of what matters the most to us is how many charging points are we delivering. And um, we have 60,000 charging points um, in the market, uh, installed and manufactured and designed by us, uh, which, is the, which is the largest installed base uh, um, in the market. So it's uh, so it's, it's it's quite commendable, but the interesting part is it's obsolete compared to the next three five years. So we did sixty thousand now, but we might have to do millions in the next three to five years. So so the, the whole scale, it's uh, it's great if you look at the past, but uh, a, a niche 
or a very minor market share compared to what's coming. Okay, so you're saying that uh, the 60,000 now, are you need to forget about them and uh, and focusing on the, the millions you have to deliver the next couple of years? Yeah, so it's a bit almost like, let's say, what got you here won't get you there. Uh, I think it was Reid Hoffman from LinkedIn that said that. So the 60,000 really help us get here and, and establish us as a fast-paced, entrepreneurial, global mindset company. But the electric vehicle market is going to keep growing. Yeah, There are 3 million cars on the road. It's expected that by in the next three to five years, the annual sales will not be 1 million electric vehicles, but 10 or 20 million per year. That means that the need of, of charging stations and charging infrastructure at all levels will exponentially increase. So the way we operate, the way we manufacture, the way we design, the way we deliver has to be optimized for, for scaling not of just hundreds, but thousands and hundreds of thousands and potentially millions. Is, is this a kind so, of product when, when, you, when you first get it, it's almost impossible to get a new one? <laughs> so your customers are basically lifetime customers. It's because the, the cost yeah. the cost of getting a new a new charging station would be too high. Yeah, so this is, this is a very good example of a high lifetime value customers uh, that once uh, once you get the charging station, hopefully you don't have to worry for it for the next hundred years. Five five to ten five to ten years, I would say. The funny part is when people ask how, how long can a station last. <laughs> we are in we are in existence for 80 years so as of now for 80 years a station can uh, can survive and maybe 10 15 20 um yeah it, it's a new market so so it can last as long uh, as long as our quality of our product so for now it's 80 years next year will be nine years the year after will be 10 years as long as we exist is uh, how long it lasts our product yeah so uh, let's talk, talk a little bit about uh, the growth you had and and the growth you will have so how, how do you define growth and why why it is it why is it so important to grow hmm. um yeah i i see growth as as the you know like a never continuous search for progress uh, it, it, it should be, it should be this idea that you have a need and an intention and ambition for scale and impacting positively the lives of people with that scale. Um, I see, I see it as extremely important because that's how ideas and dreams become a reality. But once they become a reality, if you stop thinking about growth, you have to keep reality in check. You have to keep being relevant. Uh, you kept, you have to keep iterating, exploring, experimenting to, to find the best product market fit continuously. Yeah. So, so that's a, for all the startups, uh, entrepreneurs, founders, growth, they, everyone talks about product market fit. Yeah. On how your product fits the market and is relevant to the customer. Many people, once they find the product market fit, they think it's over. They think that's it. I found the product market fit. The customers are willing to pay for it. Uh, but they forget that the product market fit is a continuous search. You have to keep on checking and uh, and ensuring that as a growth, as a head of growth or as a growth mindset, it's extremely important that you keep in check the organization on a product market fit. Yeah, because markets markets change, right? Market change, markets evolve, uh, companies uh, disappear. There's uh, all the stories on the history books uh, on Kodak and all the companies that were big and disappear or become irrelevant. Because they stopped checking their product market fit. Because their assumptions like customers are buying our products, we are growing. Revenue is the only, the only, uh, the revenue or net profit or, or sales are the only metric that organizations were seeing. And nowadays that is no longer enough. 
No. You cannot just look at that. So how, how do you continuously search for product market fit? Um, you have to look. I'll see that there are three things that you have to always keep looking. Of course, there's the customers, yeah? Of, not just that if they keep buying, but if, if they are extremely happy, if they refer the product to other people, if they become ambassadors, how many of those become ambassadors? That's a good sign of how much your product is loved and shared. But then you have to look at the future customers, yeah? So, for example, that might be a, fear, a big far-fetch, but the way that people purchase the product today will not be the same 10 years from now. So the, the next generation of people that will come, will they buy the same product? How can you test it? So maybe you have to, to have a couple of experimentations and tests on future customers, uh, which might be a bit of a younger age, but might become the next big thing. And then the other thing is that you have to challenge your business model uh, from time to time. Does it mean that you keep challenging it because otherwise you don't have stability and, uh, and progress, but you do have to at least challenge every, if not every year, every three years, you have to challenge and see, okay, is the business model still uh, the one that help, that will help us grow and, 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 uh, and evolve? And if not, or if you want to explore new ideas, then you have to start a side project and see, okay, let's try something different and see how it works. So is EVBox uh, uh, have a, a structure in place to ensure that? Let's call it that we are building that structure in place. Yeah? So we are now setting up a, what we call an innovation lab. We start to differentiate our products and, and see there is a phase of the product that is innovation. And then there is a phase of the product that is development. We are trying to bring together more and more the whole components of the office. Yeah? So uh, because we are working with hardware, with software, with complexity of the industry, yeah? because it's not... Uh, you 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 chose an electric car and you have you now drive electric. It's uh, it's a different game. You yeah. st- you have to you have to learn um, you have to learn more than just a car. Yeah. You have to learn about energy consumption. So there is a requirement to expand your knowledge. So so I th- I think we are building a, a a kind of an improve and invent mindset in the company. Yeah, where we are in continuous improvement of our products, but at the same time trying to invent not just new products but new ways of doing business. Uh, exploring new things like, for example, will people uh, have a rental model rather than buying up front? Will they be willing to pay a monthly fee for the station uh, for a lifetime rather than paying a one-time-off fee that is very high? Is that something that people will be willing to do? Yes or no? Let's explore. So that's, I think that behavior will help us keep being relevant. And, uh, and because we work with resellers and partners, we have to ensure that they, we have a closer relationship with them because they have a lot of information that it's important for us to, to have. Yeah. So you, uh, I'm, I was going to ask another question, but I was, this is interesting. This about your, your model with the resellers, because we see a lot of, uh, uh, companies shifting from going, you know, through middlemen, uh, mm-hmm. and to going directly to consumer. Yeah. And um, or or to or to um, directly to uh, the uh, the customer, and uh, so. so but wh- why are you actually using the reseller model uh, instead of going directly? Because you you do the marketing yeah. for them. Yeah, to a certain extent, yes. We also want, want them to do you know more localized marketing for themselves. Yeah, uh, it it is it is a tough choice. Yeah, I, I think you can live with both, and you can try both within a certain balance. The way we choose the, this approach is because it was more scalable when looking at, at how the market was going, how people were purchasing their car, how people were looking for stations. They were looking online, but purchasing a potentially 
I don't know, uh, a thousand, five hundred, a thousand five hundred is not a, is not a purchase you do lightly. Uh, you have to you have to consider. There's a there's a moment of consideration, and because we work with B two B, we will need a very high amount of a sales force to reach all these B two B customers. You could do it online, but a purchase manager, a procurement, uh, a facility manager likes to take its time for the project and see, okay, which kind of investment I'm going to do? How do I get the return on investment? What is the benefit? That conversation is too lengthy. So with the resellers, just expand faster. Yeah, we, we have nine offices, but we installed stations in 45 countries already. Yeah. Uh, that can only happen because we have this reseller partner network that help us reach new markets and learn from them. Of course, it does bring challenges with it. Uh, but at this point in time, it helps us scale faster and learn faster because we work with so many partners in different markets. So after you've sold the product, who owns the customer? Uh, is it is it the reseller or is it you? The reseller or even the customer of the reseller. We 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 know we don't. It's a bit like the not as extreme as the Airbnbs and the Ubers that they say we don't own any car, we don't own any apartment. No, I mean, like, who owns the customer? Like, the customer relation? Is it? Ah, the is customer it, relation. Is the it, reseller, is, yeah. Yeah, is the reseller. Yeah, yeah. I see. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, in so, most cases, in most cases, yes, there are situations where the reseller wants us to take care of the after sales. But let's now it's a bit uh, too much on the <laughs> on the details of the business. But in in general, uh, uh, rule rule principle rule. It's the they own the customer uh, relationship. Okay, interesting. And um, so you're scaling a hardware, a hardware slash software company, yeah. but it's like hardware based software company. Yeah. And um, uh, so, so what do you think has been the key elements to you, uh, your growth success? Uh, I, I, I imagine that choosing the reseller part has has sparked mm. some growth at at the yeah. start. But what what other elements do you think is uh, important for your success? And um, well, one of the things, uh, well, uh, that's, that's more in regards to the way we see product, um, and especially with charging stations, one thing you'll notice that, uh, uh, a lot of the charging stations are ugly. <laughs> mm-hmm. They are just plain ugly. They are just boxes. Uh, and we look at the, the set, we look at the station, at the hardware, the same way we look at the, at the software, which is, has to be easy to use, um, has to be to a certain amount scalable, you know, the user experience and user interface has to has to feel um, excellent, has to feel attractive. So I, I think the fact that we look at the, how easy it is to use and understand um, the design has to be nice and compelling. If you look at the last designs at, uh, of the stations we are launching into the market, they are definitely nice designs that you would like to have at your home or at your office. Um, I think that sets us a bit apart or at least help us grow. The resellers network can definitely help us out. And and then the fact actually that we had a good combination of, of good marketing and branding working together. So so the good relationship with the marketing sales and resellers where we created a branding portal or we, we build a we well we use the branding portal to share all our content with the partners. You want to use our photos, use our photos. You want to use our white white papers content, use our white papers content. And you want to learn about our products, here is a e-learning platform. So we we be giving so much to our resellers and partners that they trust us a lot. So this open offering is very uncommon. People are always very protective of, of their content, whilst we look more at no no use our content, which was a bit of a different uh, a different perspective. Um, and then I think the, the the mindset helped a lot. We kept on growing. 
we kept on expanding. He had an office in UK, he had an office in Norway, he had an office in France. So it was also hard because we learn by doing and we learn a lot of things on hardware that are not so easy. Yeah? Once you have to pass legal legalization, compliance with hardware, and you learn a lot about the, adjusting a product. So I think that fast-paced environment helps us move fast and opening nine, ten offices in, in, in three years, especially in the hardware situation, is not as easy as it sounds. Um, so I would say the combination of this mindset, the combination of, of playing with a, with, a, with a business model where hardware and software are together, offering the whole A to Z experience, the reseller network, and this collaborative approach to inbound marketing, reseller marketing, and, and the sales team, I, I think it worked pretty good. Um, yeah, and the fact that we, we were also a lead generation magnet for, for them. Uh, if we have a lead that comes in, wants to know more, at a certain point in time, we guide them to our customer and partner, which they appreciate a lot and makes them more connected to us. So what I'm hearing is that you're basically treating your resellers as customers and trying to enable them to deliver the best possible experience to their customers. Yeah. Making at every- the same time, yeah. And at the same time, we think about the customers. We create content for the end customer, like the, the workplace, the person at home, which means that we are thinking of the customer for our partner, which happens to be also our customer from a financial point of view, which can be a complex system to think of, but it works. It works because we are always thinking about what are their pains, gains, uh, how can we impress them? How can we better support them? How can we help them reach the customer in a better way? Because that will benefit us. Yeah. So what 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 are your tips to other hardware companies that trying that are trying to scale and to grow? Uh, of course, there are different uh, tactics for different types of company, but are there any universal metrics or tactics that uh, hardware companies should think about? I don't know if there are universal tactics or techniques, but there are certain things that definitely will be learning lessons that other ones might might keep in mind, which is um, maybe one of them is that when expanding to new countries or new regions, um, yeah, to, to really do as much testing as possible beforehand. Uh, and that means have a, try to find a couple of small customers uh, and try to sell directly before building a reseller network. Just to learn from the customer, learn from the pains and gains, and then see, okay, this is more or less how the market works. We need this kind of reseller, which is an interesting part because resellers are, are very different. Yeah, You can have a, a really large company that adds to, to their portfolio, or you can have a small company that just focuses on our products uh, or our type of products. So that is, that is different per market. So so I, I think that to have helped uh, having the mindset of you go to a new country, we sell directly for like, maybe a quarter or a half a year, learn from the customer, and then, okay, this is how this market acts. Let's find resellers that can operate in this business model or in this approach. Hmm. That will be something that I would probably suggest rather than just trying to go full on, finding partners, resellers, train them. And by the time you train them and educate them, six months pass, and you don't even realize who are who are your customers, yeah? And especially for hardware companies that have a large customer database or they can reach so many customers and so many personas per se, maybe having a clear focus on who who is the persona that matters the most uh, might be a good idea to get started. Yeah. So but do you think that the reseller uh, strategy is good for every hardware company? Not necessarily. I I would say that it can work for a lot of them, uh, but 
I will not necessarily say that uh, that is a must. I think every company has to find. I do think a reseller network can definitely help scaling uh, faster than if you go direct, uh, just because of the, the situation of hardware, where you have to supply and, and, and ship everywhere in the world. How are you going to do that in certain extent? And it also depends how the hardware, if it's just hardware that you can install yourself, so I can install myself, I don't need anyone else. Chances are, if you go direct, e-commerce, online, you can scale pretty quick if you have a very strong logistics center or supply chain, very smooth. But if you need uh, electricians or, or a specific installation to be made, it becomes extremely hard. Yeah. Then, then the reseller network probably is best because you can have on-site support. But if you send a hardware that requires proper installation to... Um, I don't know, uh, to Australia or New Zealand, and they have a problem, you're not going to fly someone there to fix the problem because it will end up being more expensive than the hardware. So you need, to, you need, you need a reseller network in those situations where the installation, maintenance, and support of the hardware, chances are it's hard to do self, uh, self-made, you know, like the person cannot go on itself. So you would differentiate on the, the toughness of managing the product Yes, as a consumer, rather than uh, having to rely on, yeah. Uh, yeah, on an installation expert or yeah, uh, electrician, what what not. Yeah, for example, it's it's a bit like if uh, if I'm selling, uh, it's a bit of a random example. If I'm selling fridges, uh, even let's say that there is an e-commerce online, etc. If I have a problem with the fridge, and if someone wants to give me on the phone instructions on how to fix it, it's not going to be the easiest task ever. And if I have to go behind the fridge and fix things and open. And something goes wrong, who's the liability? So there's a lot of things depending on how the hardware is built. So I would see from the complexity, as you mentioned, of installation, maintenance, usage. If it's easy to install and maintain, like, for example, Alexa and Amazon, you can do it yourself. I, I receive the hardware. I can install. I can maintain. If there are problems, I can try to fix. And the same doesn't happen with these appliances. No, I see. So uh, what do you see as uh, that many companies do wrong concerning growth? Mm. Let, let's say you have a product market fit and now you want, yeah. you want to grow. What, what do they do wrong in your eyes? Well, the, what I see especially today is uh, because there's a, there's a rise of the whole growth hacking movement. Yeah? And I believe that a lot of the startup scale-ups, product companies that are growing are potentially focused too much on the shortcuts. And the short hacks that give, uh, you know, that give these, these quick wins and not having a long-term strategy on how they are going to grow. They, they are focusing more on the growth hacking than on the business model innovation. Or they are focusing more on the, on the growth hacking and not on the North Star, as, 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 as uh, actually Chanel is, uh, uh, says. Um, so I, I, think I see that as the biggest risk. And, and sure, the shortcuts can help you keep on growing. It happened to me in the past. Yeah, I, I work in Belgium for 40 years with with two startups, and I also fall on that trap of finding quick wins, quick wins. But sooner or later, those quick wins will have a, a period where they will not work anymore. Or, uh, and in that case, you might have to think about okay, what's next? And you can go from experimentation to experimentation. But at a certain point in time, you ask about all of these experiments are towards what. Yeah. So, so that's what I mean. I think this this uh, this uh, movement for growth hacking also is leading to a movement of shortcuts. And I, 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 for example, I cannot read any more articles on how I grew my websites by 130% in three months. 
and I'm more interested in knowing about how I built a growth mindset across the company because that probably is going to have a longer win but harder to uh, to measure. Uh, which brings the other things that people do wrong about uh, about the growth, which yet many of them only look at quantitative data and they don't look at qualitative data. Uh, and I think both have to work together. You, you, cannot, you cannot just focus on quantity and you cannot just focus on quality. You always have to focus on balancing both. Some of them might have a higher priority at certain periods in time, but you cannot live with one and the other. No, because uh, the, the quantitative data gives... Um gives an um, uh, instant image of the situation now. But yeah. but the quality of the data can help you look into the future, right? Or am I exactly. Wrong? Uh, no, exactly. The data is a critical element of growth. Yeah. Um, they, uh, we, as, a, as a critical element of growth, or the key element of working with growth is that you have to accept that data has to be part of your daily life. And the data can be subjective, it can be quantifiable, can be quantitative, qualitative, but you have to have a lot of data to make decisions. Gut instinct can only take you at, until a certain extent, or at least if you have a gut instinct, let it be based on some data. Yeah. So how do you how do you and Evibox work with data? How is your approach to <laughs> growing? We, I, I I think for the shift conference, I think I even put on the on the on the, on my bio that I, I just love dashboards. Yeah. <laughs> my life is built of dashboards. <laughs> Dashboards, dashboards, dashboards. Uh, but it, it is true. I, I like to look at dashboards. But what I find, for example, a simple dashboard is to is the one that everyone uses. Probably is it how many visitors you have, how many of them become leads, marketing qualified leads, sales qualified leads, opportunities, customers. Just to understand the impact of marketing in the company. Yeah, even if you are a reseller network or a reseller approach, you also want to know, you know. Where it comes from, all the all the all the sales, all the charging points of the customers, uh, all the satisfaction. So you look at all that data, but that's just the top of the funnel data, yeah, the the big picture. You look at that, you can see the funnel, you can see which parts of the funnel are working best or not. What is really interesting is to try to find what's behind that, yeah, and you know what uh, what is the the country or the product line that is slowing down this month, and then you try to find why. Uh, and then you find you can find that the reason might be as random as oh everyone went on holiday so there was no one to install stations so there is a delay on production. But even finding that through date is exciting. So so I, I think I believe we we cannot live without data and then especially TV box it became more and more part of of our of our company, um, and we are we are finding I think the challenge now is as we have so much data. How do you collect the data? How can you trust the data and the authority of it? And how can you make sound decisions based on that? Uh, and that's a continuous progress. It's not perfect. And no startup or scale-up can tell me that they have a perfect set of data they can, that, uh, that is uh, set in stone. You have to keep on improving the, how you collect the data. So that's the phase where we are now. We have all these dashboards. We have all these ideas on how we can get more information. But we are learning how to make use of it. And I think that that's an exciting journey. So what has surprised you about uh, the role of being head of marketing growth? You know, you, you started in 2015, now three years in. What has surprised you? So, so I, I, my, from a background point of view, I came from, uh, from uh, let's call service industry. Yeah? So I spent some years on leadership development and, uh, and, uh, and international internships with, with a youth-run organization called Isaac. Uh, and then I moved to uh, 
to a SaaS world and software as a service in business intelligence and, and the HR hiring, uh, hiring tools. So when I moved to head of marketing and growth uh, or leading marketing and growth at EV Box, uh, what surprised me is that working for SaaS and services and working for uh, IoT or hardware software driven company is a whole different, bo- a whole different game. So, so you, the, I, I realized that you know you can have all this experimentation, all of this iteration, and but hardware doesn't work the, the same way. If you have a flaw on on the hardware, or if you miss a compliance or a certificate, it can take months or even years to get everything up and up and up and right again. So the hardware game and the the the, the the decisions we make, especially on hardware, on how to go to market, have a really long-term implications compared to software where you can launch a new feature. And if it's wrong and there was a backlash, you can quickly remove it, hide it, adjust and collect feedback. With hardware, it's harder to have all of these things working. And with hardware working with software, uh, what surprised me on the role is how much you have to also know about it. You, to be head of marketing and growth, you have to learn about the product. Um, but to be in a, such a company of hardware and software, you really have to invest your time on understanding everything around the product, the industry, how an energy works. And for, for me, was a whole, my, my first book I read in the company was How Electricity Works for Dummies. <laughs> yeah. Because that's the basis, yeah? We are working with a with product that uh, touches electricity. How does it all work? And then I have to read about the car industry, how people select their car. Uh, because... You know, lucky or not, I didn't own a car since I left Portugal because I've been working on cities with excellent public transportation or ease of uh, ease of move. So I have to read again how people select a car. How do they buy a car? What matters on a car? And then, because of we are in the electric vehicle industry, how they find a charging station. And then, so you you have to read a lot about the customer journey because the product market fit is there. It's it's a, it's a it's a privileged situation to be in an industry where. Uh, are just rising and people need a charging station uh, or, or, or the facility managers, fleet managers, uh, companies need charging stations to support the electric drivers of the company. So the product market already exists, as you mentioned, but how can we innovate and, be, and have a faster pace than all the competitors that are coming and newcomers? So I think that, that surprised me about the role, how much knowledge you have to get quickly and how iteration and experimentation can still happen. Um, but maybe they're not the shortcuts, but the long-term wins will decide, the, will decide the winner because the decisions you make now will impact the next three, five years of the company because you have a product life cycle that has to go up and down. Yeah. So, so that, that was a surprise element because I haven't worked with hardware before. So, so that was definitely a learning. Yeah, interesting. And um, so lastly, last question. So uh, what... Uh, do you believe to be the truth, but something that most others people will uh, disagree in? <laughs> That's a tough one. <laughs> um, no, I, I, there's a couple of them in my mind, but just for the sake of the podcast and to make things interesting, one thing that I believe to be true is is that nationalities will become obsolete in the future. Um, and the reason why I'm saying this is, you know, if if people see sci-fi shows or if, if they read like sci-fi books like Seven Eves or, or even the, like TV shows like The 100 or other sci-fi Star Trek, you will notice that the way we envision those shows is rarely with nationalities. It's humans, is uh, to a certain extent, it could, we could say 
air races or, or areas, uh, depending on the show. But you see that this rarely brings back to nationalities. There's always an evolution beyond nationalities. And if you look at globalization, it's becoming harder and harder for people that are be- living abroad, and it's becoming more and more people living abroad. Yeah? The concept of immigrants is becoming also, to a certain extent, obsolete because you can live everywhere, and you should be able to live everywhere. Yeah? We are the ones that define the borders, not the planet. So, you know, I, I, I was born in Portugal. I lived in Netherlands, in Belgium, and in India. If someone tells me, oh, you are Portuguese, it's pretty hard for me to say that I'm Portuguese because a lot of me is no longer Portuguese. There's, there's a certain part of me that definitely is influenced by having born and lived in Portugal. But there's a part of me that is influenced by having lived in India. A part of me is influenced by having lived in Belgium. And a part of me is influenced by having lived in Netherlands. And then I traveled to 50 plus countries in the last well, years of my life. <laughs> and so to be honest, I, 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 I feel way more the, the, the sense of being, um, human to a certain extent and uh, then being Portuguese. I like to talk about what makes someone human than what makes someone Portuguese. Um, so, so to that extent, and because I see more and more people feeling the same situation where they don't even know what's home anymore, uh, I think nationalities will become obsolete. But when I say will become obsolete, might be a hundred, two hundred, three hundred years. Uh, unless we mess up climate change, then probably will be less. Uh, but uh, hopefully not. I trust the, the upcoming generations and ours to, to do better. So do you believe there's uh, a big uh, business opportunities in, in thinking about this, like yeah. envisioning uh, this? So, yeah, so and you, you already can see now, yeah, people are looking at space, space exploration, space travel. And I believe in my lifetime, space travel will become uh, common, will become more affordable, which means that you're going to see the planet and... I do hope that when you see the planet, things become, you get a new perspective that uh, you are rather small or certain things are rather small and you are part of an unthinkable universe. And uh, you can see already people like, like Musk and other ones that believe that it will become a, a, a multi-planet race. So if people start living in Mars or other things, so, so the whole concept will evolve. Yeah. You, you can no longer have, uh, to be associated to a nationality per se. But okay, it's a very, as you mentioned, it's such a complex uh, thinking process uh, that I'm not even sure I'll live in a lifetime where this will become a discussion. But so, it is a thought I have, yeah. Yeah, so I guess we will see. So I guess that in your strategy document for EVBox, uh, it says that you will have uh, 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 charging stations on Mars, right? Well, we never know. Well, Musk already sent the, the, the Tesla model, the, the, the Roadster to space. We thought of sending a charging station because he forgot to, that he needs to charge somewhere. So maybe he can send a station to make company to him. Yeah, cool. Uh, yeah. Yeah, Hugo, uh, thank you very much. It was very interesting. And uh, we're, we're looking forward to having you in, uh, in Norway in uh, November at the Shift conference to talk about uh, growing. And um, I'm, I'm wishing you all the best for EV Box until then. So thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure.